Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to say sorry for the hiatus in episodes over the last couple of weeks. I was dealing with a pretty nasty sinus infection. So with that mostly out of my system, I'm going to go ahead and record this episode for the week. If you notice any weird pauses or me trying to catch my breath, that is the answer for it. This week, we are going to cover the Deepwater Horizon disaster. This disaster remains one of the worst environmental disasters to occur in history, leading to the worst marine oil spill in recorded history, releasing 134 million gallons of crude oil, or roughly 5 million barrels. Before we jump right into the episode for the week, I do have a few housekeeping notes to cover. The first thing we're going to cover is my shameless plug for the Patreon that I'm trying to build out. Um, I've revamped the tier benefits. The community responder level, or the $5 level, is the entry-level tier. This tier offers access to the Patreon community, a monthly AMA hosted on the show's Reddit page, and a shout-out each episode. The next is the Section Chief, or $10 tier. This tier offers all perks from the previous tier, a 10% discount on merch, and four Destination Disaster stickers following your first month's billing cycle. And finally, the Emergency Management Director, or $20 tier. This is the highest level of support currently and offers all benefits from previous tiers plus a 20% discount on a merchandise and a curated merchandise bundle worth $50 from myself. If you choose to support, please know that there is no obligation and you can cancel at any time. This show will always be free to listen to and the Patreon support is merely to help the show continue to grow. The next story that I'm going to cover is following up on that mysterious respiratory illness that seems to be spreading around northern China. That same bacteria is now appearing in both Denmark and in Warren County, Ohio, here in the United States. While not to epidemic status here in the United States, Denmark is reporting the contrary. An uptick in hospitalizations is being reported. This epidemic follows roughly a four-year cycle and looks to be rearing its ugly head once again. The SSI, or State Serum Institute, Denmark's primary disease monitoring agency, said that infections of mycoplasma pneumoniae in Denmark were high enough to be classed as an epidemic. A total of 541 cases were reported last week, more than triple the total number recorded in October. And finally, on December 6th, a former college professor opened fire on the campus of the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, killing three before dying in a shootout with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police. The gunman in Wednesday's shooting was a professor who had unsuccessfully sought a job at the school, a law enforcement official with direct knowledge of the investigation told the Associated Press. He previously worked at East Carolina University in North Carolina, said the official, who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they weren't authorized to release the information publicly. The attack terrified a city that experienced the deadliest shooting in modern U.S. history in October 2017 when a gunman killed 60 people and wounded more than 400 after opening fire from the window of a room at Mandalay Bay Casino on the Las Vegas Strip a couple of miles from the UNLV campus. The motive remains unknown as the professor's online footprint did not indicate any immediate threats or radicalization toward a cause. With those items out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into the episode 
and learn a bit more on the history of the Deepwater Horizon rig and the capabilities of this behemoth. Deepwater Horizon Rig was a fifth generation design of the RBS-8D drilling platform type. This type of rig is specifically constructed to operate in deep waters, is dynamically positioned, meaning that this rig has propulsion and is able to maintain its location without the assistance of other ships or transport method. It is also column stabilized, meaning that it is connected to semi-submerged Cassians and other hardware. This class of rig was designed to drill at a maximum depth of 30,000 feet. Construction initially began in 1998 by Hyundai Heavy Industries in Ulsan, South Korea. The company taking possession of the rig following its completion was RNB Falcon, which would later be acquired by the largest marine drilling corporation, Transocean. Transocean, through its Steinhausen Switzerland subsidiary, Triton Asset Leasing, operated the rig under the Marshallese flag of convenience. The rig was leased to BP on a three-year contract for deployment in the Gulf of Mexico following construction. The lease was renewed in 2004 for one year, 2005 for five years, and 2009 for three years, covering 2010 to 2013. The last contract was worth $544 million, or $496,800 a day for a bear rig, with crew, gear, and support vessels estimated to cost the same. Once deployed, the rig began immediate drilling operations, drilling in the Atlantis and Thunder Horse ExxonMobil oil fields. During early operations, the rig was associated with luck and was revered as one of the most powerful in the world. In the mid-2000s, Deepwater Horizon discovered a huge oil field, which would later be named the Cascada Oil Field. In 2009, Horizon would once again discover another oil field. This time, it would be the largest oil field discovery in the world. The well in the Tiber field had a true vertical depth of 35,050 feet and a measured depth of 35,055 feet, below 4,132 feet of water. The well was the deepest oil well in the world and more than 5,000 feet farther below the seabed than the rig's official drilling specification stated on the company's fleet list. In 2010, Horizon began drilling an exploratory well named the Macondo Prospect at a depth of 5,000 feet 
Prospect exploration rights had been acquired by BP in 2009, with joint ownership by BP at 56%, Anadarko Petroleum at 25%, and Moex Offshore, 2007, at 10%. The location of this site was approximately 40 miles off the coast of Louisiana. Transocean maintained a solid safety record, having no major incidents, for roughly seven years, up until the explosion at the Deepwater Horizon on April 20, 2010. Transocean ranked first in 2008 and 2009 in a category that gauges its in-house safety and environmental policies. There were few indications of any trouble with the Deepwater Horizon before the explosion. The rig won an award from the MMS for its 2008 safety record, and on the day of the disaster, BP and Transocean managers were on board to celebrate seven years without a lost time accident. Quite ironic, right? A BP spokesman said rigs hired by a BP had better safety records than the industry average for six years running, according to MMS statistics that measure the number of citations per inspection. Quite ominously, in a report filed with the Minerals Management Service, an arm of the Department of the Interior who supervise offshore drilling, BP claimed that there was little to no risk in the drilling being performed. If an accidental spill or blowout occurred, it was thought that due to the depth and distance from shore, that environmental impacts would be significantly reduced. In February 2009, BP filed a 52-page exploration and environmental impact plan for the Macondo Well with the Minerals Management Service. The plan stated that it was unlikely that an accidental surface or subsurface oil spill would occur from the proposed activity. In the event that an accident did take place, the plan stated that due to the well being 48 miles from shore and the response capabilities that would be implemented, no significant adverse impacts would be expected. The Department of the Interior exempted BP's Gulf of Mexico drilling operation from a detailed environmental impact study after concluding that a massive oil spill was unlikely. In addition, following a loosening of regulations in 2008, BP was not required to file a detailed blowout plan. While safety measures were installed, most were not fitted with remote shutoff capabilities better known as dead man switches, that could be activated in the event of an evacuation and loss of contact with the rig. Horizon was fitted with a blowout preventer, which, when activated, would immediately cut the drill and seal the hole to ensure that oil did not leak. Documents discussed during a congressional hearing in June 2010 indicated that Transocean previously made modifications to the blowout preventer for the Macondo site, which increased the risk of BOP failure, in spite of warnings from their contractor to that effect. Prior to the actual event, there were several safety incidents that should have begun to raise red flags to show that operators on the rig began to either falsify key safety data or that the rig was reaching its maximum operational capacity. The answer, in my opinion, is both. The Coast Guard issued nearly 20 pollution citations for the Deepwater Horizon and investigated a further 16 fires that occurred on board. While this is not out of the norm for a deepwater drilling operation, it reinforces the possibility that rig operators were beginning to show signs of fatigue. However, the smaller incidents foreshadowed more serious incidents that would begin to occur started in March 2010. The rig experienced problems that included drilling mud falling into the undersea oil formation, sudden gas releases, a pipe falling into the well, and at least three occasions of the blowout preventer leaking fluid. The rig's mechanics stated that the well had been experiencing problems for months, and that the drill repeatedly kicked due to resistance from high gas pressure. On March 10th, a BP executive emailed the Minerals Management Service about a stuck pipe and well control situation at the drilling site, 
and stated that BP would have to plug back the well. A confidential survey commissioned by Transocean weeks before the explosion stated that workers were concerned about safety practices and feared reprisals if they reported mistakes or other problems. The survey raised concerns about poor equipment reliability, which they believed was a result of drilling priorities taking precedence over maintenance. The survey found that many workers entered fake data to try and circumvent the system. As a result, the company's perception of safety on the rig was distorted. Unable to identify any key safety issues on the right due to falsification of data, neither the Minerals Management Agency nor the Coast Guard knew of the true state the Deepwater Horizon was in. Before we jump into the explosion, I'll pause here for a quick PSA. Hey everyone, it's Devin here. As we quickly approach the holiday season, there's a couple of things that I think are important to remember. The first is mental health awareness. The holiday season can be overwhelming for many, and it's crucial to prioritize mental health during this time. Encourage open conversations about mental well-being and remind others that it's okay not to be okay. Share resources and information about local mental health services, support groups, or helplines that can provide assistance to those who may need it. In the midst of the holiday rush, remember that the most valuable gift you can give is your time. Listen to those around you and be mindful of the challenges some may be facing. Offer a helping hand or a listening ear, fostering an atmosphere of empathy and understanding. Finally, our country is a diverse melting pot of different cultures, backgrounds, and celebrations. Recognize and celebrate the diversity within your community. Embrace different traditions, customs, and celebrations, creating an inclusive environment where everyone feels valued and respected. This holiday season, let's redefine the true spirit of togetherness by ensuring that no one feels alone and by prioritizing the mental well-being of our community members. Together, we can make this season a time of warmth, compassion, and support for all. We here at Destination Disaster want to wish you all a joyous and inclusive holiday season. Welcome back. As we move into the explosion and environmental effects that this explosion and subsequent oil leak caused, you'll notice that there were indeed warning signs of an impending explosion and that measures could have been taken to prevent such. Before the break, you heard that several issues were occurring simultaneously such as a gas buildup and a breakdown in equipment. It is reported that the manager of Gulf of Mexico Exploration, David Rainey, was angry that the well was over budget and consequently began placing heavy pressure on engineers to rush the portion of sealing the well off. If safety concerns were raised, workers faced termination. According to a number of RIC workers, it was understood that workers could get fired for raising safety concerns that might delay drilling. Rainey was putting his staff and the drilling department under pressure to finish the Macondo well and move the rig to the next exploration prospect. Rainey was angry that the MC-252 well was over budget and needed to be finished. Gulf of Mexico engineers were not satisfied that they had a proper leak-off test and had concerns as to cement integrity. Rainey pressured them to complete the well. No cement bond log was run, the technical staff wanted to re-squeeze the well, and Rainey would not accept this recommendation. Had these concerns been raised, it's entirely possible the explosion could have been prevented or mitigated to a lesser extent. But no, as we have seen in each of these episodes, profits take center stage over safety. Even with the rush that Rainey had placed on the crew, the mining operation was running five weeks behind, adding even more stress. 
On April 20th, at around 10 p.m. Central Daylight Time, a fire erupted on board the Deepwater Horizon, followed by two large vibrations that violently shook the rig. Lights began to flicker, and pressure began to quickly build in the marine riser and ignited. According to BP's internal investigation, a bubble of methane gas escaped from the well and shot up the drill column, expanding quickly as it burst through several seals and barriers before exploding. Rose said the event was basically a blowout. Survivors described the incident as a sudden explosion that gave them less than five minutes to escape as the alarm went off. Within those five minutes, the fire engulfed the rig, taking with it the lives of 11 employees unable to escape in time. The United States Coast Guard immediately launched a rescue operation involving two Coast Guard cutters, four helicopters, and a rescue plane. The two cutters continued searching through the night, and by the morning of April 22nd, the Coast Guard had nearly surveyed 1,940 square miles. On April 23rd, the Coast Guard called off the search for the missing 11 persons, concluding that reasonable expectations of survival had passed. Officials concluded that the missing workers may have been near the blast and unable to escape the sudden explosion. A memorial service was held in May for the 11 workers deemed to have been killed in the disaster. Immediately following the disaster, BP launched an internal investigation as to what could have caused this disaster. By September 8, 2010, a near 200-page report detailing the investigation was released, identifying eight main causes for the disaster. Those were cementing inadequate, Cementing proceeded a without flushing the annulus around the shoe rack at sufficiently high rate and duration to ensure full circumferential removal of compressed sediment and good distribution of cement, and b without converting the float collar to activate its two check valves to prevent cement backflow. Valves to prevent cement backflow did not close. Weatherford's autofill float collar, which includes two flapper type check valves, was installed at Macondo 180 feet above the reamer shoe at casing bottom. The valves are held by a 2-inch diameter auto-fill tube to allow the casing to fill with mud while it is lowered down the well. BP's casing installation procedure stated, slowly increase pump rates greater than 8 BPM to convert the float equipment 500 to 700 PSI per Weatherford recommendation. Pressure test wrongly interpreted. Drill pipe was run to 8,367 feet and was thought to be ready for mud displacement during the negative pressure test, for which there was no detailed procedure. A no flow resulted from the kill line was accepted, while a 1,400 PSI result on the drill pipe was ignored. Leak not spotted soon enough. While displacing the mud with seawater, reservoir fluids rising up the casing should have been detected by water inflow and mud outflow monitoring before arrival of hydrocarbons at the rig floor, but no reasonably accurate outflow versus inflow observations were made. Valve and the blowout preventer failed when the crew attempted to close it. Mud gas separator failure. Instead of venting mud and gas directly off the rig, the crew allowed it to flow through a device to separate gas from the flow of mud, which was overwhelmed. Gas alarm system failed. Flat battery in the blowout preventer. The blowout preventer incorporated systems which included a flat battery and a defective switch. Environmentally, this remains the worst oil spill to occur in the world. While conducting search and rescue operations, the Coast Guard identified the oil spill. According to the petty officer who identified the leak, she told media sources that the leak was releasing approximately 8,000 barrels of oil or 340,000 gallons of crude oil per day. After several failed attempts to seal the well, the task was finally completed by September 2010, 87 days from the initial discovery. 
However, the damage was done after over 4 million barrels of oil were released, landing on some of the most vital habitats on our coastlines. From the western Florida coast to the barrier islands of the Texas coast, oil trapped marine life, mammals, birds, and vital vegetation that many of these species called home or provided protection from dangerous weather. Satellite imagery detailed the seriousness of this leak, showing that 70,000 square miles were affected, or roughly the size of the entire state of Oklahoma. As the oil arrived on shore, damage and death was near immediate. By early June 2010, oil had washed up on 125 miles of Louisiana's coast and along the Mississippi, Florida, and Alabama coastlines. Oil sludge appeared in the Intracoastal Waterway and on Pensacola Beach and the Gulf Islands National Seashore. In late June, oil reached Gulf Park Estates, its first appearance in Mississippi. In July, tarballs reached Grand Isle and the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. In September, a new wave of oil suddenly coated 16 miles of Louisiana coastline and marshes west of the Mississippi River in Plaquemines Parish. In October, weathered oil reached Texas. As of July 2011, about 491 miles of coastline in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida were contaminated by oil, and a total of 1,074 miles had been oiled since the spill began. Luckily, the response was immediate after learning of the oil spill. Multiple response agencies deployed into the area to both try and prevent the oil from spreading using damming methods and protecting the wildlife. However, due to the duration that the oil spill lasted, oil reached the beaches and habitats and began to coat everything in its oily sludge. Cleanup crews were truly the hero for this disaster, many working long, restless hours to provide immediate relief to the surrounding areas. This cleanup portion would last from the initial discovery in 2010 well into 2013. In Louisiana, oil cleanup crews worked four days a week on 55 miles of Louisiana shoreline throughout 2013. 4,900,000 pounds of oily material was removed from the beaches in 2013, over double the amount collected in 2012. Oil continued to be found as far from the Wakanda site as the waters off the Florida Panhandle and Tampa Bay, where scientists said the oil and dispersant mixture is embedded in the sand. In April 2013, it was reported that dolphins and other marine life continued to die in record numbers, with infant dolphins dying at six times the normal rate. One study released in 2014 reported that tuna and amberjack exposed to oil from the spill developed deformities of the heart and other organs which would be expected to be fatal or at least life-shortening. Another study found that cardiotoxicity might have been widespread in animal life exposed to the spill. One thing that we really need to focus on is the human factor in this disaster. The volunteers and people that worked to help clean up this spill not only offered their time, but many gave their bodies at the expense of this disaster. Many suffer adverse health effects to this very day. For those of you who may not know, including myself, I did not know that crude oil contained extremely toxic chemicals such as benzene, toluene, and other incredibly harmful toxins. In addition, the chemicals used to clean up the oil are considered a form of pollutant in itself and can harm wildlife and cause long-term health effects in humans. The long-term effects from the BP oil spill on exposed cleanup workers produced an increased prevalence of illness symptoms such as shortness of breath, headaches, skin rash, chronic cough, weakness, dizzy spells, painful joints, and chest pain seven years after their exposure to the oil spill. Previously, 
Several studies have likewise reported an incidence of acute somatic symptoms in oil spill exposed or oil polluted subjects. The simple fact is that this disaster could have been prevented and served as a textbook what not to do scenario. From management essentially forcing the rig operators and engineers to overlook key safety data, forcing them to work through failing equipment, and the operators failing to identify that drilling needed to be halted and the well needed to be plugged, the amount of variables in play here is mind-boggling. Life is still recovering in these habitats, and I'm not sure if it will ever return to 100%. I want to thank you for listening this week. Once again, I want to apologize for the delay as I did have a nasty sinus infection. This will more than likely be the last episode of 2023, as I plan to take some much-needed rest from both the podcast and work. I want to wish all of you a safe and happy holiday season. Please don't blow any of your fingers off if you plan to indulge in fireworks. Until next episode and next year, this has been Destination Disaster. This is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.